musical linguistic Greetings from Cyberdelic Space. This is Lorenzo, and I'm your host here in the Psychedelic Salon. And while I was originally planning to play another of the Palenque Norte talks for you today, I'm sorry to say that, uh, well, apparently integration back into the default world must still be taking place among our intrepid burners because, well, alas, they haven't passed another of the talks along to me yet. But having been to Burning Man several times myself, I completely understand. Coming back to the default world can be, well, overwhelming sometimes. In fact, I'm not sure that I've ever completely recovered myself now that I think about it. So I've gone to Plan B and dug up another Terrence McKenna talk. Again, I think that it's one that I haven't played here yet, but if you've been following the comments after some of the McKenna program notes, you may have noticed the discussion about whether a recent talk was a repeat. Uh, Ultimately, I think it was decided that the talk was new, even though uh, some of the stories weren't. You see, uh, when people send me these tapes, they sometimes have titles on them, and uh, other times they just uh, have a date or a place or event uh, noted on it. And uh, if I was a serious historian or something like that, I guess I'd most definitely do a better job of uh, cataloging these talks for you. But uh, I'm not anything like that, and uh, (laughs) this is just my hobby, so I'll have to leave the scholarship to you. Anyway, the talk that I want to play for you right now was recorded on a Friday evening, and it began with the attendees going around the room and saying a little about themselves. My plan was to cut that part out for privacy reasons, but whoever made this recording, well, they did it for me. So uh, you'll notice a little uh, jump in continuity when Terrence begins his main rap for the evening. As you'll hear, uh, this talk took place in February of 1992, which was a year of major events in the life of Terrence McKenna. One of those events was the publication of a new book, uh, his first one after the publication of the Mushroom Grower's Guide that he wrote with his brother Dennis. And now that we're looking back more than 20 years after the talk that we're about to listen to, it's, well, it's fun to hear Terrence speaking in public for the first time about this new milestone in his life. As you'll hear in just a moment, Terrence begins the program by reading his schedule for the rest of the year, which, as I said, was 1992. And the reason that I left this part in is twofold. First, I thought that you would find it interesting to hear a little bit about what was going to uh, be happening over the course of the year for Terrence, uh, at least in the way of public appearances. But it also may be of nostalgic interest to you in the event that you were able to attend one of these events. Now, if you've been with us here in the salon for a while, when we get to the end of Terrence's talk and he begins with his uh, apes eating mushrooms story, well, feel free to fast forward to the end because he really doesn't add anything new this time. However, I've uh, left it in this time for any newcomers to our little gatherings here who haven't heard this story yet. So now let's join Terrence McKenna and a few of his friends on a February evening in 1992. So, uh, welcome to healing the inner elf through trance, dance, and diet. If you think you're in the wrong room, check your program. Uh, let's see. There's uh, some propagandizing to do in no particular order. Um, these are. This is just uh, my schedule for the next uh, year. Fairly set in case you want to uh, avoid this kind of encounter again in the calendar year. This will help you coordinate that. I think there's an event in there where it says it's one or two things, and it's not the angels and archetypes in L.A., it's the other event in New York City. So scratch out the aliens event, and uh, it's in New York City, that thing, that weekend. And then, finally, the desperate need to make a living overwhelmed my commitment to good taste. And so, like so many others, I will lead a trip to Egypt in (laughs) December. Hey, listen, you too could be forced to these kinds of desperate measures. 
And the only way to make it bearable is to insulate oneself with one's friends uh, so that you don't have to have anything to do with the other people on these tours. So, you know, we can suffer together, folks, if you want to pony up several thousand dollars. I don't think they'll invite me back if they have anyone here listening to my pitch. Um, okay, maybe the re- oh, and the optional cruise up the Nile. I'll be there too. So it's two weeks of incredible fun. Uh, there'll be a come as you were party on the third night of the cruise. <laughs> so enough. Uh, poking fun at our colleagues at their expense. Finally, there is a book out. Um, Those of you who, if you've ever wanted to buy a Terrence McKenna book and have been frustrated because you didn't want to grow psychedelic mushrooms in your kitchen, which was the only other book around, uh, you can now... uh, purchase this book. However, only in the Esalen bookstore because it can't legally be sold till the 17th of February. So the Esalen bookstore made a special deal with Bantam and got a couple of cases of it for this weekend. So you could actually be the first person on your block. The title is Food of the Gods Not... Why Eve was right, which is what I wanted, but you learn your place in the hierarchy of being when you work with Bantam books. But seriously, this is uh, my best shot at making a rational argument, (laughs) sort of, uh, based on archaeology, history, and so forth, um, for the importance of psychedelics in culture and in the present situation and uh, for a need to rethink cultural and legal attitudes toward these things. So that's in the mix. And that's, uh, I think I'll save the rest of this paper for tomorrow morning. What happened to the Harper's book that is going to be released the first? Aha. Uh-huh. Fans of internecine publishing struggles. Uh, what happened was uh, the two publishers decided, some faster than others, that it would be better if the Bantam book came out first. So the Bantam book is out. And the question refers to a second book called The Archaic Revival which will be out in May and which will in no way duplicate this. Um, they're completely different books, but there was a little jostling toward the finish line and Harper's decided to let Bantam go first. After 20 years of being ignored, it was nice to see that these people were paying attention. So anyway... Uh, That's it for the gossip department. Welcome to um, Esalen, those of you who have never been here before. Welcome to the refurbished big house fans of uh, renovation who have been here before. And um, the best way these things work, I think, or what we've fallen into as a habit, is on this first meeting... uh, People basically just state if they wish to who they are, but for my edification, what can I tell you? You know, what do you want? It's brief enough and it will go past very quickly. So, out of people stating their interests and concerns, tonight will come an agenda of topics for the rest of, uh, of the weekend. And uh, once I get going, my style is pretty much just to rave. So feel free to interrupt. Otherwise, it will just go past. And uh, you can interrupt for clarification or to ask a question or what, whatever. It's very informal.
It's so informal that I don't even know the name of it. Does anybody have a catalog? A weekend with Terrence McKenna. We finally just hurled all pretense to the wind rather than endlessly recycling. Uh, uh Uh-huh, well, we can probably fill that bill. So uh, this... To my mind, the importance of these things is that everybody is self-selected to be here. And it's an extraordinarily peculiar set of concerns that fall into nexus in this situation. So we represent some kind of an affinity group. And I think it's very important for the people to get to know each other because, uh, you know, all kinds of relationships, arrangements, possibilities can emerge out of these meetings. Someone in this room has what you're looking for. And, uh, you know, your, your problem is to figure out who and then uh, go from there. So to aid you, the clues, the clues emerge tonight when we go around in the circle and everybody gets a brief chance. And for some people, it will be probably their only opportunity because some people step out of the light to um, say anything you want, uh, provided it's brief. Lack of brevity is proof of psychosis in this situation. And after all, we are in a center for psychophysical healing, so please honor that. Um, My take on science, I mean, just, I might as well couch it as a comment to you, but it will come out in some other form anyway, is uh, science is excellent at doing what it was designed to do, but it has expanded its province into all reality and seeks to pass judgment in areas where it has no real business going. It's a very limited method that achieves its claim to universality by wildly exaggerating its accomplishments. For example... um, Science to do its work, I mean, modern science, post-Newton, depends on probability theory. But probability theory has a built-in assumption that has never been thoroughly looked at, and that is the assumption of um, what Newton called pure duration, meaning that... uh, Science, if you describe a scientific procedure to someone, they don't ask whether you did it on a Wednesday or a Saturday. Science seeks to be time independent. And in order to do that, it has to make the assumption that time is invariant. There's no, this is just a first try with Occam's razor. In fact, in our own lives, what we experience is endless variation. In other words, it may be that the hydrogen bond, when it breaks, always breaks the same way. But love affairs, investment strategies, political campaigns, the building of empires, uh, these things are always characterized by a kind of uh, uniqueness. And science, by in, by invading these domains with probabilistic conceptions, gives us the science of statistics, polling, and hands to us mythical entities like the citizen or the average white male. Or, you know, I mean, these are just absurd abstractions that are generated by a particular kind of worldview that is not really examining its uh, first premises. So I would propose a, a modified definition of science that would then let it do its work in peace, which is science is the study of those phenomena which are time independent but that in many realms of nature, uh, a new theory to replace probability theory and flat duration is necessary. The 
power of probability is simply uh, based on its success in these very, very limited domains. And now there's no way back from that. Modern science is thoroughgoingly probabilistic. If you were to try and remake, I mean, they're always raving about the new paradigm in science, and it's always usually some tiny diddling of what they've already got. Uh, if you were to really try and make remake science, then you would have to replace the assumption of, of invariability in time with a mathematical statement about its variability. And we'll talk more about that tomorrow because there is room for that. I mean, science is not reason. Reason is a different domain. And, and I think anything which is unreasonable ultimately unreasonable is just patently absurd that's why I don't feel great affinity with most of the marching hordes of the new age because you know the fact of the matter is they don't possess any razors for separating the nuts from the berries Uh, but nevertheless our intellectual choices are not between the channelers of Lazarus and the American scientific establishment there's a vast set of possibilities in between there and beyond those uh, those poles of discourse that can be worked out every society that's always existed has had the built-in assumption that they only needed to find out 5% more about reality and then it would all fall into place and that they had the right tools for doing that. And uh, But this, we look back then with this great sense of superiority on the naivete of the ancient Egyptians, the ancient Greeks, the Maya, the 17th century English, everybody, we look back on their naivete. But in fact, our own cultural enterprise is obviously fraught with a peculiar illogic and childishness and naivete. I mean, we're a culture that, uh, you know, robs our children to create a potlatch culture in the present. And this will look fairly this would look fairly pathological from any cultural perspective outside our own. The, the thing, I mean, this is a segue, but it, it makes sense. The thing that I think psychedelics do that addresses this problem and many, many problems or um, choke points in our ideological effort to understand what's going on is the contribution that they make is that they dissolve boundaries and culture I mean the word virtual reality was used as we went around the circle culture is the sanctioned virtual reality and it is put in place by the machinery of local language you see And so then you're born into this circumstance and you're told, you know, you are a male child, you are a citizen, you are a citizen of the United States, you are a Christian, you are a Jew, you will go to college, you will do this. And you, this you never question. It's called the social contract. It hasn't gone unnoticed by Western philosophers. It's just, it's gone unnoticed by those of us who are its foremost victims. They try to tell you that you're in a social contract, but when you ask to see your signature on the document, they tell you that you were born into this contract. Well, what the hell kind of contract is that? It means that you were born into a kind of enslavement to a linguistically empowered paradigm of virtual reality within which you will walk around your entire life constant, uh, you know, congratulating yourself on its accomplishments and uh, ignoring its uh, contradictions and weaknesses. So what psychedelics do and why they are in all times and all places such social dynamite is they dissolve the cultural machinery. Doesn't matter. You know, 
head-shrinking Amazon native, Hasidic Jew, Chinese merchant in Singapore, whoever it is, the psychedelic dissolves their cultural construct and puts them in touch with the fact of being in organism. Being in organism is like what you get when you take off your real clothing. Not this clothing, but the clothing of language, programming, and assumption. Then you find yourself within the context of organism, outside the context of culture. And for the reason this is not a mass movement is many people hear that and they say, I know what that is. That's called being nuts. (laughs) I don't want that. That sounds absolutely terrifying. Well, these are people for whom that cultural machinery is necessary armoring in an almost Reichian sense. Necessary armoring. They cannot face the world without culture because they are in fact defined by culture. Now, who are these people? These are the people, and we each to some degree imbibe in in this category. These are the people whose values are set by the uh, engines of commerce and propaganda. These are the people who dress as they are told to dress, spend as they are told to spend, believe as they are told to believe. But within every human being, there is a kind of, at least the possibility, of a revulsion against this kind of uh, anesthesia of uniqueness. Because that's what it is. You can put your uniqueness to sleep. And then, you know, you dress Gucci and you invest with these people and you drive this car and you know you're correct. Because your accountants, your managers, your agents, your public, whoever, your husband, your lover, is telling you that you're correct. Definition from without means being defined by the cultural machinery. Uh, cultures other than our own have somehow always known perhaps because nature is such a huge force outside the western industrial democracies people have always known that this was a fiction that the world of cultural values is um, a necessary illusion if you will And so they create a class of people called shamans or seers or magicians or trans ecstatics or what have you. And these people are deputized by the cultural machinery to go beyond it. To go beyond it and to return with truth. Not culturally sanctioned truth but just truth, the felt experience of being in organism that I'm talking about. And by this process, uh, cultures conduct their evolution, if you're an evolutionary thinker, or their random walk through time, if you're more of a phenomenologist. But whatever they're doing, we're not doing that. Because... The mechanisms that we have used to close off access to the beyond culture dimension have in our hands grown so strong that we have, in a sense, succeeded to the point where we've put ourselves out of business. And the people to blame for this are these wily Greeks. Because... While everybody else was carving horned masks and painting themselves with cross-hatching and stuff like that, the Greeks got the idea, we'll do it differently. We will portray the surface of the naked human body in marble. What this means is that the eye rises to the surface of reality and looks around for the first time 
from the point of view that we would call naive realism. But what a cultural journey it took to reach naive realism because you had to sever yourself endlessly from the intuition of a symbolic, magical, spirit-haunted universe. And the Greeks, through a series of cultural accidents, and I would say mistakes, ultimately, achieved this. And they had then an alphabet, a phonetic alphabet, which empowered a further severing of linguistic intentionality from the essence of the object intended. Because you see, a phonetic alphabet symbolizes sound. It doesn't symbolize the way something looks or its thinghood. It just symbolizes sound. And uh, the phonetic alphabet then issued into a series of cultural styles, science, rationalism, mathematical analysis of phenomenon. I mean, this was something absolutely unheard of and, and is the unique contribution of the Western mind that, you know, people noticed that you could take a gut string and shorten it by half and the tone would shift one octave and stuff like that. And they got the idea of numerical analysis, which opened up the path into culture to the present world. Well, each of these steps into Realism, and remember I said we would call it naive realism. Now that word takes on a different meaning from the context of the 20th century. It was naive. It was horribly naive. In fact, we were led down the primrose path by such simplistic notions because what was suppressed was uh, the invisible, messy world of the spirit and the human unconscious. This is the great tension that illuminates Greek civilization. You know, on one, I mean, it's all, take Plato as an example, because here in one thinker, these uh, uh, distinct strains of thought, these uh, antithetical strains of thought are perfectly present. You have, you know, an overarching realism, a drive to categorize and to arrange in rational relationships, and you have a thoroughgoing mysticism with roots back into the Minoan religion of Crete and back into Egypt and Africa. I mean, it's really extraordinary. And that was the last moment in the Western cultural enterprise when these things were in balance. And they were not in balance in any one particular person. If you lived in that world, you probably had to pick and choose. And, you know, the, uh, the skeptics were sneering at the Gnostics who were saying secret knowledge came from an unspeakable place beyond the machinery of cosmic fate. And the skeptics just thought, you know, baloney, what kind of talk is that? Now, we live in the consequences of this naive realism because like all forms of innocence, if allowed to grow beyond the proper bounds, it becomes festering, it becomes decadent, it becomes not innocence but idiocy. It turns on itself. And this is, I think, the kind of world that we're living in. Now, parallel to this, a cultural adventure of several thousand years, the rainforest peoples of the warm tropics of the world kept intact the high Paleolithic style of cultural relativism mitigated by natural magic. And what did natural magic mean? It meant these dissolve, boundary-dissolving experiences with hallucinogens. Now, it isn't simply, I don't want to make it sound reductionist, it isn't simply that culture builds up structure 
and psychedelics dissolve structure and then conduct you into some shimmering existential realm of, of uh, transcultural being. It isn't that. It's that in that shimmering transcultural realm of being, you discover new modalities, new rules. There's something there when you dissolve all the boundaries that you can. And the paradox of what is there from the point of view of the legacy of rationalism is what is there is an immense love and affection and intentionality waiting to engulf suffering mankind or the individual. This is the, what I call the mind behind nature, what people call Gaia, the uh, mind of the planet, the uh, organized intellecti that somehow is the mothering force that encloses the whole of planetary life. This is a, a real thing. And I would never have thought so had I not had experiences which forced me to consider this. I think without the experiences, that rap comes off as horribly namby-pamby. You know, I mean, it's just, oh my God, not another one of these Gaia people, you know. But, in fact, this is a fact of reality, which anyone who, who has the courage to make the proper investigations can satisfy themselves is a real uh, object of experience. The, you see, I, I guess, I mean, I grew, I'm 45, I grew up through the 50s, and I can remember these movies where the white people get captured by the cannibals and, and put in the pot to be boiled, and there was always a witch doctor, right? Well, this guy just epitomized the most nightmarish forces of unbridled primitivism and ignorance imaginable. Now, this has become, or is in the act of becoming, I hope, the guiding paradigm of the culture. Because what the shaman is, is the person who is still, and it's men and women, the person who is still in touch with this organic intelligence that lies behind nature. Now, the, the puzzle behind all of this I really don't think that there would be much of a problem if what we were dealing with was a planet with teeming oceans, teeming jungles, climaxed forests in the temperate and tropical zone, arctic tundra, so forth and so on. The, the, the clue that something weird is going on on this planet is ourselves, obviously. I mean, we are like a fart at the opera. Everything else makes sense. We don't make sense. Uh, and the speed with which uh, human, the human type emerged from the proto-hominids is uh, unparalleled in the evolutionary history of life. Uh, Edmund O. Wilson called the doubling of the human brain in size in under three million years the most rapid doubling of organ size in a major animal in the entire history of life on this planet. Us. There's something weird about human beings. And so much of the explanatory machinery of culture is designed to make it go away you see. Uh, even something as, as uh, respectable and uh, expressive of liberal values as Darwinism is in fact an effort to explain how it's all okay. It's natural. Don't worry. It's natural. You just get mutation and you have natural selection and you have traits and these traits extend themselves. But 
it's a great step, you know, to Milton, to the space shuttle, to an integrated global economy. I mean, are these the products of animal existence? The Darwinist says yes. And we tend to huddle under his umbrella because, you know, these shit-slinging fundamentalists seem to be the only other people out there. But, obviously, when you're impaled on the horns of that kind of a dilemma, there needs to be a breakthrough to a third, fourth, or fifth possibility. And what I would will argue for this weekend is that... Um, something very, very peculiar adheres to the adventure of being human. And that it is not all business as usual. We are not simply an advanced chimpanzee. Neither are we the sons and daughters of the Lord God Almighty. I mean, that also seems to me a stretch and to raise certain problems not easily swept under the rug. There has to be a third possibility. And I think that when we start, as we will tomorrow, talking about the way psychedelics synergize and stabilize certain abilities within uh, a hominid population and the way in which then other cultural reinforcements can be built upon that, you will see at least part of the story has to do with um, the way in which by being forced toward an omnivorous diet by virtue of having to leave the canopy homeland for... uh, a bipedal existence in the grasslands, we had to undergo a huge dietary change. And part of our strangeness has to do with the evolutionary changes worked upon us by virtue of our exposing ourselves to unusually high amounts of mutagens in foods as we expanded our diet. And drugs and foods come in here. The other part of the equation, which is much more speculative and which we'll talk about tomorrow night, is, uh, has to do with the notion of an attractor and of trying to look at humanness not as a mistake, a cosmic error, or as Heidegger said of, of man, he said we are flung into being the idea always being that it doesn't make sense, that there's an arbitrariness to us. But I think that there's a way of analyzing process that will show that we are uh, not only uh, part of what is going on, an embedded part of what is going on, but that we actually represent... uh, uh, the place where all the eggs are poured into one basket. And I'll just say a little bit about this tonight. Uh, When you look at the history of the universe, if you look with unbiased eyes, I think that what you will see is that the universe is a novelty-producing and conserving system of some sort. The early universe was so simple that if when we now rest we're going with science here for a minute it it we're asked to believe that it sprang from nothingness in a single moment that its diameter was less than that of an electron and then in a very short period of time a number of very dramatic things happened but they are all couched in terms of an expansion and uh cooling From the moment the universe is born, it begins to cool. And as it cools, complexity magically crystallizes out. The original universe, there weren't even atoms because there was such high temperatures that atoms could not stabilize themselves into orbits around atomic nuclei. So there was what's called a plasma, just a soup of naked electrons. And then, gradually, as the universe cooled, uh, 
the simplest of all atomic systems was able to form the hydrogen atom. And these hydrogen atoms were produced in staggering amounts and they began to clump together. And this is tricky, but not our problem. This is a problem for science. They don't know why they clumped because it should have all been smooth right down to today, but it isn't. So in this clumping process, of course, great temperatures and pressures were created at the centers of these masses of hydrogen and a novel process, therefore, could spring into existence, the process of fusion. And fusion of hydrogen in early stars cooked out heavier elements, iron, sulfur, and especially carbon. Well, after that, then, you get all those molecular or atomic species, and then they can aggregate into molecular species, And then, because of the presence of four-valent carbon, very complex molecules called polymers, which are chain molecules, can form. Some of them acquire the quality of being able to replicate. Some of them acquire the ability to enclose themselves in a membrane, and so forth and so on. And in short, the march is on toward you and I here this evening. But what's interesting to note is that each successive stage in this process happens more rapidly than the process which preceded it. So that the early universe, a billion, ten billion years goes on, and it's all about this star formation cookout thing. And then, you know, planetary formation. Then once you get, uh, and then a billion years, they wait for primitive prokaryotic life. And then, once it happens, the eukaryotes follow fast, and after them, the ciliated protozoas, and, you know, it's just a moment to Madonna. (laughs) Both of them. Okay, now, what science says about this process is that what we're seeing is an illusion, or that it doesn't matter. They're saying it, it is not a law of the universe that novelty be conserved and that each new level of novelty proceed more quickly than the one which was its parent. And so by chopping it off like that, human history is is denied any relevance in the natural order. It is not part of the natural order. And even though we think we're a secular society, our assumptions about history are straight out of Genesis. You know, we do not think of history as a branch of biology, and which it obviously is. So what I believe is happening is an accelerating process of novelty conservation that has reached such a point now, at the close of the second millennium, that it is absurd to try to propagate the human future by fantasy, centuries into the future. There is no future, because the rate of acceleration is so close to approaching infinity that no possible future can be imagined. Now, people talk about this, but they never draw the implications. You've probably seen some show on television talk where they say, you know, the, here's the curve of human energy release, and here's the Stone Age, and here's the 16th century, and here's the 20th century, and it's headed for infinity. Okay, next slide. Here's the curve of human speed. Uh, in the 1750, people could go as fast as a horse could gallop. In 1820, at the steam engine and then and then the 20th and then it goes to infinity and they say okay here's the human population curve uh, in the year 1000 there were fa- uh, 400 million people on earth in the year 1850 and so forth and it goes to infinity so, so nobody takes they don't believe it they don't believe that the rational extrapolation of the trends visibly uh, beheld in the present preclude the possibility of any imaginable future. Or at least I don't believe so. I believe that we're actually in the grip of a process that cannot be 
halted or accelerated, but which is now in a process of tightening its gyres, as William Butler Yeats said, that that what we call the chaos of 20th century history is in fact the speeding up of this temporal process to the point where it is now visible within a single human lifetime. I mean, we're like mayflies or something. You know, we're born one day and we die the next. So only the most incredibly accelerated kinds of change make any impression upon us whatsoever. I mean, mostly we say nothing happens. But in fact, you know, in the 20th century, it's incredible. In the last 12 months, there has been more change compressed into time than in the previous 20 years. And those 20 years had more change in them than the previous 100 years. And that 100 years had more change in it than the previous 1,000 years. And that 1,000 years had more change in it than the previous 10,000 years. But science tells us this is meaningless. This is not a real, legitimate phenomenon that you're talking about. You're just lining up facts to make it appear as though there is an attractor, to make it appear as though the human historical enterprise is about to run itself uh, into an, a stone wall or off a cliff or into another dimension. And this is really the question, I think, uh, because psychedelics are uh, or were once described as consciousness-expanding drugs, phenomenological description, consciousness-expanding drugs. Well, if that's true, or if there's even the slimmest possibility that that's true, then we have to avail ourselves of these things because consciousness is precisely what we are starving for the lack of. And uh, history is no longer rationally apprehendable by the systems which created it. I mean, everybody who's running around gloating over what happened to Marxist-Leninism should understand that Marxist-Leninism is traceable right back to the social contract theory of Henri of Rousseau and that Western liberalism is traceable to the same root. And the crisis of Marxism is they just died first, that's all. But all these ideologies are on the brink of a coronary thrombosis, and we're going to have to catch the falling bodies when it hits. I mean, do you think that mercantile capitalism, which extracts uh, the uh, environmental reserves at an ever-accelerating rate, has any... History, any future whatsoever on this planet? I mean, they're just looting the last few hundred billion dollars worth of stuff before they announce that everybody's going to have to go on a diet that will drop your jaw, you know. So we've come to the end of our rope. So then what do we have to do about it? Well, what we have to do is we have to look back in time and find cultural models that served in the past. And, uh, you know, many of you who have been here before have heard me talk about what I call the archaic revival, an effort to jerk 20th century culture 180 degrees and send it right back to the value systems of the high Paleolithic because that's the last moment that intelligence, language, religion coexisted with nature on this planet in a less than fatal arrangement. You know, from uh, the moment that agriculture was invented, the die was cast. Because first of all, agriculture is a strategy for dumping a huge database, the database of the hunter-gatherer, and replacing it with a database that is important for only five or six species of plant, you then give up nomadism, which begins to concentrate your impact on the land into one place. You then plant these crops, and you have such success producing food that now moving anywhere is unthinkable, plus the big project after the fall harvest festival is now we have to build a wall 
to keep the starving people from stealing our surplus. So immediately there's a us successful people and those people who weren't successful and who have different cultural values and who didn't produce a food surplus. So, uh, you know, we've decided we're going to sharpen sticks and kill all of them. So then you have warfare thicker walls, retreat into cities, standing armies, defensive territory, uh, class structure emerge, the notion of wealth as an abstraction, because wealth in an in a aboriginal society is a sharpened stone, not your portfolio with uh, your investments uh, neatly listed, you see. So... This is, uh, you know, just a, a pass over these themes. I know a lot of people came hundreds of miles and drove a long way today, and I tend to whip you with this stuff. Uh, but uh, the idea is that the psychedelics are more than the best fun there is, which they are, more than a tool for exploring your own psyche and straightening out your own kinks, which they are, they are, in fact, the key to understanding the pathology that culture has become and the way out. I mean, there has to be a way out, and it's, it really is this archaic revival I mean, and if, you, if you're resisting it, think of it this way. If we don't organize the archaic revival, it will be handed to us on a platter in the form of failed agriculture because the ozone hole is screwed up, infrastructures falling apart, financial systems falling apart, the rise of fundamentalist religion. In other words, we are going to have a return to... Uh, a previous historical model. And it can either be managed humanely through uh, an honoring of the feminine, an honoring of the earth, a return to the um, techniques of ecstasy that characterized the high Paleolithic shamanism, or it can be handed to us in the form of shortages, famines, disease, internecine warfare, nuclear proliferation, toxic dumping, so forth and so on. But one way or another, this whole edifice put in place by the Renaissance and jacked up to high speed by the European Enlightenment and delivered into this hellish climax by mathematical analysis and uh, and the global, the rise of global technology. And remember, each of us has never seen these changes within a lifetime. And yet, within the past 200 years, the world has gotten tremendously more pathological, tremendously more ill. The size of cities, the power to, to uh, extract natural resources, to mine Siberia and the mountains of Chile and uh, the interior of the Amazon and Borneo and these unimaginable technological infrastructures have been put in place to sustain a dying patient. I mean, that's what we have here. We're on respirators. We're getting intravenous feeding. They are monitoring everything because it's not healthy. It can only be sustained through the most extraordinary and heroic means. We're taking bone marrow from the children of the future in order to keep a corpse alive. And people don't find their voice. They don't seem to know how to call a halt. You know, I mean, I listen to the politicos who aspire to leadership and, you know, they have the same problem with the vision thing as the maximum leader of the present moment. So these are the things that we'll talk about this weekend, and you must steer me, or I will harangue. And it's, it's not a pretty sight, I must tell you. Are there legal ramifications, or do you have, like... Legal ramifications to this plant collection in Hawaii? Are some of the plants regulated? Well, this is sort of a touchy area. There's nothing that is out and out 
drag them away kicking and screaming illegal like coca or something like that. It sounds like it would irritate the authorities nonetheless. It may potentially be some kind of irritant to them. Uh, you, you would have to be a field botanist of great skill and sophistication to find anything that was a problem. Um, there are plants that have never been, that are, t- are in some nebulous dimension illegal, but there's never been a test case of it you see because one of the things that would be a rational reformation of the drug laws and would in fact follow the lead of English common law is to distinguish between a plant and a drug in fact at one point I advocated what I called the vegetable drug act which would just be simply to state that plants are not drugs and plants cannot be illegal. You can't make a portion of nature illegal. This is crazy thinking. Um, one of the things that I talk about in my book that we've never talked about much in these weekends because the groups don't seem to have much interest in it, but I found it sort of fascinating, was, uh, for example, in the case of, uh, of opium, most of us grow up with a completely demonized vision of the morphine family. I mean, this is the lowest of the low, and if somebody gets mixed up in junk, it's just considered, you know, slow suicide and so forth. And it is certainly true that heroin addiction is uh, uh, fairly destructive and doesn't do your relationships any good and that sort of thing. But... It it was very interesting to me in the process of writing this book to discover that uh, opium, which has been known and used by human beings for at least 4,000 years, possibly longer, nobody ever suggested that opium was addictive until the 17th century when the English physician John Playfair noted for the first time that uh, exposure to opium created a craving for more opium. It had been used for 3,000 years without anybody ever noticing that it was addicting. And one of the, ten- one of the um, tendencies that this book traces fairly clearly is the tendency to refine and strengthen drugs until they become social problems. We don't seem to rest until we push them to the most virulent, most destructive form. A good example of this that you're all familiar with is coca and cocaine and crack. Because coca is, if you go into a coca-using area of the Amazon or the Andes, the villagers, the people you met, meet, they are very well aware of the cocaine problem in the United States and the DEA and all this. And the first thing they want to tell you is, coca is not a drug, it's a food. And uh, Tim Plowman, God rest his soul, a good friend of many of us, who died a few years ago, a great field botanist. He did studies of the nutritional value of coca and discovered that, in fact, in a coca-using population, up to 30% of the vitamins and minerals in the diet are coming from coca. And it is not uh, a social problem. It does not lead to antisocial behavior or child abandonment or violence or anything like that. It is, in fact, largely... It makes life possible in the jungle because it gives you the energy that you must have. The jungle is an extremely encroaching place. And if the only tool you have to hold back the jungle is a self-sharpened machete, in the absence of coca, 
you would toss in the towel after a couple of weeks of struggling with this. In the presence of coca, you can settle down to a lifetime. It's a short life. You'll be dead between 35 and 40. But a lifetime of struggling with the jungle. You see, one misconception that it's probably important to clear up that people have about the jungle is they, when they see the climaxed tropical rainforest, they assume that this tremendous richness of vegetation must signal a tremendous uh, availability of food, fruits and things. This is not at all the case. It's very easy to starve to death in a tropical jungle. The reason for this, especially an old tropical jungle like the Amazon, the reason for this is because evolutionary competition is so keen among species that there is no luxury to produce rich, juicy fruits loaded with sugars and stuff like that. I mean... Often in the Amazon, people will show you what they're eating as a treat, something they found along the trail. And when you bear down on what it is, it's often a a fruit or something like that that has just a millimeter thin film of slightly sweet pulp or something like that around it. There isn't a... It's not a place where it's easy to get a food supply together. So a drug like coca, which suppresses appetite, this is its second important consequence, uh, is in great demand. And uh, the suppression of appetite, the providing of energy, it's made for this very, very harsh environment. The other thing is there are other psychoactive compounds in coca, other so-called canes and they mitigate the the uh, the property of the cocaine western science got a hold of this and quickly turned it into cocaine which is uh, you know very hard on the major muscles of the heart highly addictive and um, you know a fairly uh, pernicious drug although It's the monkey doing it that you usually have to wonder about. And then, you know, in our perverse way, we go to crack cocaine, which is an even more virulent form, more easily delivered. And drug, the evolution of drug delivery systems is an interesting uh, aspect of the whole drug problem. Hypodermic syringes were invented in the 19th century just in time for the invention of morphine. And uh, and following on the heels of those two inventions were two great wars, the American Civil War and the Franco-Prussian War in Europe happening at roughly the same time. Out of those two wars emerged the first population of hard drug addicts in Western culture. There had never been anything like that before. At the close of the Civil War, morphine addiction was called the soldier's disease because there had been so much indiscriminate use of morphine on the battlefields of, uh, of the Civil War. You're listening to The Psychedelic Salon, where people are changing their lives one thought at a time. The soldier's disease, overuse of morphine. Now, that's something that I hadn't heard of before. I guess that uh, each generation of us humans gets so caught up in our own history that we forget the fact that in many instances we are just repeating the horrible history of the after effects of another war. How many wars is the uh, U.S. currently engaged in these days? Do you know? I've actually lost count now, uh, now that these insane politicians in Washington have also declared war on Syria. What these uh, bloodthirsty men seem to forget is that the scars of war that are left on the children who are affected will remain with them for the rest of their lives. What do you think are the prospects for a child in Gaza who has just seen his friends and family blown to bits, his home destroyed, and much of his country reduced to rubble? What do you think is going through his mind right now as he sits in the shell of his former school and begins to be taught to read and write? 
There's no way any of us who haven't been in that position can even imagine what's going through the minds of, well, quite literally, millions of children all around the world who have become the children of war. Now, we can blame these wars as contests over natural resources or about raw power or about religion. It, it really doesn't matter what we see as the cause of these wars. It's their effects that matter most. The way we begin our lives as children most often determines the state of our mind throughout our lives. I was born into a conservative, Catholic, flag-waving family. As an adult, I rose to the rank of lieutenant commander in the U.S. Navy. I was a lawyer in Houston, Texas, and I got an engineering degree from Notre Dame, a Catholic college. You don't get a more mainstream product of the system than that. I was conditioned by my family, my religion, and my culture to be all those things. Need I add that I was also very unhappy with my life at the time, because it, well, it just didn't feel like I was doing anything worthwhile. Then at the age of 42, I was introduced to psychedelics, and everything began to change for me. Now, I haven't become who I am today by simply swallowing a little pill or two, but they did help. What helped most, though, was connecting with others who were also on this path. We helped one another, developed new rituals for using psychoactive plants. We grew, we learned, and we've, well, we've had a lot of fun in the process. As we just heard Terence McKenna say, a revitalization of an archaic psychedelic culture may be the only hope that we have left to change the direction that our species has been heading in now for, well, several millennia. All of us, me, you, and the rest of our fellow Saloners, we're all the products of the families and the cultures that we were born into through no efforts on our own. The accident of birth is what determines the life path of most people in the default world who never take their minds off autopilot. That's what our sacred medicines are for, to help us break out of the constraints that have been placed on our minds ever since birth. Take charge. Think for yourself. Question authority. All authority. And for now, this is Lorenzo signing off from Cyberdelic Space. Be well, my friends. <laughs>